Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's 16.20. God, I wish it was 16.20. None of this divisive culture war nonsense. Just good old-fashioned, pre-scientific, pre-enlightenment, rampantly superstitious, pox-ridden, slum-dwelling London. Shoreditch and Hackney are hipster-free, 5G-devoid idyls of greenfields and grazing livestock, tended by non-ironically facial-haired farmers. Brackets, hipsters. King James I of England, sixth of Scotland, is sitting on the banks of the fetid River Thames, along with thousands of loyal and not so loyal subjects. It's been nearly three hours since a lunatic Dutchman and his latest contraption disappeared beneath the waves. But the king and his subjects continue to watch. They have been promised the impossible. And because this is a Jacobean era, when the iron laws of nature are beginning to be bent by scientific minds, they believe, they believe it'll happen. And then it does. As if a leviathan was rising out of the depths, the contraption re-emerges and the Dutchman, Cornelius Drebbel, pops out, grinning, pleased with his latest invention and the reaction it gets. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of invention from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Today we're going back in time to my favourite period of invention, the Jacobean era. Right at the birth of what would become, well, modern science really, when magic and science and religion were enmeshed, a time when the only constraint on what might be possible was the imagination. And in amongst the wild, fanciful inventions of the day, most of which were complete failures, to be honest, was the first ever submarine. This is the story of Cornelius Drebbel, alchemist slash inventor and his amazing submarine. Here to tell the story is Vera Keller, a historian of technology, whose new book covers this story and many more wonderful ones like it. It's called The Interlopers, Early Stuart Projects, and the undisciplining of knowledge. It's a great book, absolutely fantastic. Enjoy the show. Seventeenth century, just like wild things, seems seem to happen in terms of like crazy inventions. And I wrote a chapter about the Jacobean space program a while ago because there was all these kinds of kind of imaginary kind of like crazy people were designing kind of rockets made out of giant springs. And uh, Serrano de Bergerac, he had this idea where he'd get some glass bottles that he'd strap to himself, which he'd fill with dew from the ground, and then as the dew evaporated, he would go up. 
Don't think it works. It's not like our technology is less crazy today. I mean, I think that's why historically we called it the scientific revolution is because it just did set in, uh, you know, progress a bunch of ideas about invention and human ability to surpass boundaries. Although more recently, some historians of technology have been really highlighting some of what we might consider crazy technology of the medieval period. So it might not even be as novel in the 17th century as sometimes we imagine, but there definitely were new techniques for promoting it on a larger scale at that time and definitely around the world. There's always that lag, isn't there, between what you want to do, what science is around at the time, and then what is actually technically possible to build at the time. Like Kepler, for example. You know, one of the great scientists, of course, who was responsible for understanding of orbits and things, he wrote a book called Somnium which was basically his kind of like cheese dream book where he just kind of dreamt up like lots of lots of crazy stuff about proto-astronauts and all, all this kind of stuff. And I don't know, yeah, I love reading about all that stuff. Well, what uh, really distinguished the 17th century was texts like Somnium in that it was kind of the first period of science fiction and people um, not just yeah. thinking of those ideas, but developing our cultural imaginary around those ideas. And so not just Somnium, but there's a whole slew of science fiction texts that start being written at that time from Bacon's New Atlantis to one of my favorites. Yeah, Bacon, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I assign my students Bacon's New Atlantis to read, and if I'm not careful by telling them that it's a fiction, a lot of them think it's a real travelogue because he starts <laughs> yeah. off the whole text without letting anyone know that it's fictional. It's just as we were sailing, we suddenly made landfall, etc. But that's really important. Early novels, like if you read Robinson Crusoe, which is regarded as the first novel, certainly one of the first novels, it's not the first novel, but it starts like this is a true story. There was no distinction between saying, oh, this is fiction. Fiction didn't really exist in that kind of sense. And also kind of, you know, um, Francis Godwin's, Bishop Francis Godwin, do you know that? The, mm-hmm. Long, the Man in the Moon, which was this fantastic voyage of a moonshot with geese, special geese that would pull you up to the moon. And again, that was the actual original text of that is, uh, I can't remember, Journey of a, of a Voyage Thither or something. It's almost portrayed as a true story. One of my favorites was published in German in 1670, and it's called Voyage Without a Ship or a Sail, meaning that it's uh, it totally uh, in your oh. mind. And it starts off at nice. the scene of a, an opera, which has all these incredible, you know, automata floating about and people singing on chariots and clouds hanging and swinging about on the stage. And then a character sets itself free from the stage and flies off uh, and then veers off course, blown across, of course, in a storm into an ideal city set in the clouds where all of knowledge is known. So this is pretty standard oh for seven, the 17th century. What? <laughs> yes. what is that? What's that called? It's in German. It's very little known about. It's in fact a, an actual time travel because he, he does mention that it's not just about going up into the heavens, but it's also about a journey into into the future. And supposedly in the histories of science fiction, there were no time travels yet in the 17th century, but this particular text belies that claim. So people were thinking about um, travel through time. Oh, that's interesting. Space. Yeah. yeah. And it's because you're one of the reading public 
that's getting all of these travel texts that, you know, people just love to lap up and very unreliable texts that report all sorts of wonders all over the world. And it kind of makes the public very aware. They're not stupid. They're quite critical of the claims made in these texts, but they also are aware of kind of the aesthetic pleasures of being an armchair traveler and thinking about what might be on the other side of the world or what might be in the future. That's very eloquently put. I want to find out that German one. That's good. There was the other, was it David Rosson? Is that his name? Have you come across? Or David Rusen? He wrote a book called, I'm reading this from my own book because I wrote about it and I can't remember what it was about. Mm-hmm. It's a lunaire. It was about getting to the moon with a giant spring. Okay. And I think it's all but forgotten, this book. There's a catapult one. I think it was, um, oh, John Wilkins, perhaps, or, or, or somebody like that. John Wilkins, who wrote Mad- Mathematical Magic. Basically, the point is, the 17th century was brilliant and there was just this great creative melding between imagination and science and it's fantastic well what it really meant was you know historians don't like this term scientific revolution anymore but there was a big change they they really don't they really hate it sometimes they still put it in their books because they know it will sell books because people you know the term revolution it's so powerful but usually oh, they, they scientists don't need to get it. over themselves. They need to they need to get over themselves. We we understand what it means. Plebs yeah. like me understand what it means. You know, it's like, okay, got it. Things change. We let we say all these kind of, you know, gentler terms like the emergence of modern science or oh, things sake. that will never, never get anybody's attention. But Yes. There's a couple of issues with the term scientific revolution. Um, one is the term revolution didn't exist at the time. So it wasn't until the Glorious Revolution in 1688 that you even have a concept of a one revolution in the singular. People use the term revolutions, uh-huh. like the revolutions of the planets in the heavens, to talk about cyclical changes. That was the concept of change. It was cyclical. You didn't have this one uh-huh. change that there transformed everything forever. Um, so it wasn't even in the mentality of people at the time to have a revolution. That is really interesting. You've just given us a bit of bonus information, a bit of bonus content. The invention of the word revolution. There we go. Whilst we're on the problem of problematic history, which everyone says very de rigueur at the moment, it's very fashionable finding problematic things. Kepler's Somnium, he describes the perfect person to be an astronaut. So this is in 16 whenever. I'm going to read it to you. I love it. It's so problematic. It's shocking, but I love it. So this is a bit like NASA saying, this is the kind of people we need to be astronauts. This is what Kepler came up with. He said, we do not admit desk-bound humans into these ranks, nor the fat, nor the foppish, but we choose those who regularly spend their time hunting with swift horses, or those who voyage in ships to the Indies and are accustomed to living on hard bread, garlic, dried fish, and other abhorrent foods. The best adapted for the journey are dried-out old women, since from youth they're accustomed to riding goats at night, or pitchforks, or travelling the wide expanses of the earth in worn-out clothes. There are none in Germany who are suitable, but the dry bodies of Spaniards are not rejected. There you go. Take that, NASA. Take that, NASA. We definitely need to have more women in space. Mm-hmm. Kepler advises. Actually, I don't know if the I think the, the new ESA group of astronauts was fifty fifty. I think NASA is fifty fifty now. I believe Kepler's mother was, I believe, tried for being a witch. Isn't that correct? Really? So he would know that. about these claims of uh, women riding on pitchforks oh, okay. and. But anyway, yes. So the point being, things like witchcraft, 
religion, science, the imagination were all kind of interconnected, really, it seems, in that period, which brings us neatly on to submarines. Well, that's exactly what the change is, and I'm arguing in this in my most recent book. It's called Interlopers. And so my argument there is that we think of modern science as scientific method, discipline, rigor, sticking to the facts, ignoring all these other things like imagination or passion, power, subjectivity. But my argument is that really medieval science was that. Medieval science was very carefully protected from the intrusion of other forms of knowledge, and in particular things like money-making or anything that might corrupt the sciences. So the university put these guardrails around what counted as science and really did not allow other things to get in the way. And what changed in the 17th century is really all these amateurs, people outside the university, who started jumbling things together in kind of a hasty and not very disciplined way at all. And that was what made some of these transformations where people are writing these scientific fantasies. That's fiction and science together. To a medieval university professor, they would be cluck clucking their tongue. How dare you? That's really interesting. Actually, that the word you mentioned there, this idea of projects and projectors. What do you mean by that? So I just love this term because it is, for me, impossible to imagine our current reality with the term projects. I can't even tell you how many times I encounter the term every day. And there's no academic that doesn't talk about their next book project, right? You know, they say, in my next book project, I shall, etc. So it's really difficult for us to kind of conceptualize our cities, our buildings, our states, our scientific projects without this term. And I was really surprised when I found out that it was new in the period that I study. So relatively speaking, it's only a couple hundred years old. And given how much it's everywhere, it's a really interesting category to think through. Well, what difference does it change? Kind of like with the new idea of a revolution, what difference does it change if you have this way to think about Something that has never been tried before that I'm going to set out into the world and I'm just going to go about bringing into an existence. There is a really pithy definition of the project from the mid 18th century that Samuel Johnson wrote in an essay on projects. He says, it's anything that has been attempted without any assurance of success. And uh, so it's this idea of taking the guardrails off. Yeah, it's a good one. It's taking the guardrails off. You know? Yeah, give us an example. Do we have. Well, the submarine is definitely a project. <laughs> People who are listening to this, I'm just giving you a bit of context here. This idea of projects, does that still exist now? I mean, I think of, I don't know, Elon Musk building a big rocket. Is that a project? That's most definitely a project. But any kind of scientific project, likewise, has no certainty of success. No. You know, we uh, now give it so much, uh, you know, social authority that we don't think of it as wild eyed when we try to go to the moon as when they did in the 17th century, but it's just as much a project now as it was then. It might be better funded now. I used to do this TV show called Bang Goes the Theory, and we used to have like a project and lovely Jem Stansfield, our resident engineer, would come up with a project and would do it. So for example, there was this um, material called piecrete, which is like concrete, except instead of using cement and sand, you use ice. And you put straw and I think in the Second World War, they were going to build like piecrete landing strips on the water so planes could land and then, then oh, they wow. just melt and go away. Anyway, we made a piecrete boat out of frozen 
water and straw like pikerite and we stuck an engine on and it, it kind of worked it worked for a bit and then it sunk and the newspapers picked it up and the headline in the sun which is a newspaper here was icebergs because we i think we we crashed into some i think we crashed into a submarine actually we were down in portsmouth in the harbor in the military harbor zipping around anyway it was a project which brings us on to the submarine okay so we're in the 17th century We've talked a little bit about the Jacobean space program and other strange people and, and projects. The first submarine, so a bit like going into space, were people dreaming of going underwater? And I can imagine they might may have been. They were thinking, Crumbs, we could build some kind of craft that would... People were not only dreaming of going underwater, they were definitely doing it. So there were submersibles and there were underwater suits. There's a lot of images of these that were published and they look extremely goofy. They're actually heading down to, you know, not too far down because they didn't have much to withstand water pressure, but they were retrieving things like cannons from wrecks yeah. and reusing them. Because you can imagine what kind of a huge financial loss that is when a ship goes down with all of its uh, armaments aboard. So they were developing all of these technologies for not only getting underwater, but then lifting very heavy things up to the surface. And the, so those are two separate inventions that often went hand in hand. The issue was that uh, although many people were doing that, it was quite difficult, uh, in fact, impossible for anyone to figure out a way to navigate underwater, where you went down in some vessel and then the vessel popped up somewhere else. That was what, uh, how we define, you know, a submarine. And that is why Cornelis Drebbel is credited with that invention is because he did achieve that around 1620. So this is the big name. And I'll be honest, I didn't I am not familiar with Cornelius Drebbel. I've heard the name, but I've never he like he did some amazing stuff. Like in the world of projects, he was like Dr. Project. Like he had some cool, cool projects on the go, submarines and ovens and weird things. Who is he? Let's just start that. Who is Cornelius Treble? So he was Dutch. He was born in North Holland in the city of Alkmaar, where he is still famous and perhaps only there. And he was trained as an artist. He was the brother-in-law of a very famous artist, Hendrik Holtzius. And he was kind of also an anarchist, which is one of the things I like most about him. I like Hendrik that too. Is, yeah. Hendrik Holtzius' own teacher was also an anarchist, political thinker, and an artist. And so you can kind of see this kind of tradition. That's what I should have been. I should... Yeah, an anarchist, an artist. Think of the tombstone, you know, it would be great. Yeah. So he uh, really had a kind of radical philosophy and he linked it to his belief about nature, his idea that there's no bounds anywhere, whether that's, you know, hierarchies in society or whether that's bounds in nature and that humans, in fact, all humans, which is what was radical about him and the period, should be able to investigate all of nature. And he wrote treatises of natural philosophy. That's the thing we forget about him because we are more snobbish now than sometimes people were in the 17th century. And so we classify him as kind of a craftsperson or an engineer or an inventor. He considered himself a philosopher. He was considered a philosopher by a lot of people, although he never went to university. He didn't know any Latin. He's writing in Dutch. But he is doing a lot of experiments and, you know, he has a grand theory of everything. And then he ties that to his ability to, as he says, prove it by making really far out there instruments that work. Forgive my ignorance. Just are we, is he sort of before Newton or during Newton or after Newton? He's about 100 years before Newton. He's born in 1572. 
Newton knew about him um, because he was quite famous. So Newton, even so, even though Drebbel was a hundred years before Newton, Newton was aware of him, and there seems to be that commonality of thought in that they were both free thinkers. They both wanted to had a, an idea that they could pin nature down. They could they could absolutely get down to the kind of ground level of everything, if you like. And they were probably a bit barking mad. <laughs> That's what distinguished kind of these ambitious natural philosophers of the period. By Newton's time, they're being called experimental philosophers. They weren't yet called that in Drebbel's time. They definitely were both alchemists. And so were a lot of other people. Um, you might have heard mm. of Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle was new Drebbel even better. He was actually very well acquainted with um, Drebbel's daughter, who was Drebbel's main scientific heir. I bet Newton probably found Drebbel problematic because he was 100 years before. So he was, oh, well, that was a bit problematic. Drebbel is the type of person that later on, when people did try to kind of elevate their authority, would be considered no longer a philosopher, but more of an inventor. And Newton was someone who really wanted to be considered like a demigod. So he was really interested in elevating that figure of the celestial, divine philosopher. And that could mean putting down some other people. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Drebble, bit of alchemy going on. More than a bit. And he invents all sorts of things. He has a famous perpetual motion machine, which is what he shows up to England with. The classic. The classic. <laughs> it's actually very ingenious, but we won't go into all the details. He uses the same technology in that to develop a self-regulating oven, which is pretty incredible, that's used for hatching chickens. Well, actually, the oven will, will come on to me. The idea of alchemy, you know, turning base metal into gold, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. All right, you know he's got this company, Blue Origin, that do space rockets that look a bit like willies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they've taken some lunar regolith, okay, some moon dust, and they have made a solar panel just out of the regolith. And I kind of think that's sort of like alchemy. It's like, oh, my God, so you've taken this, all the kind of chemicals and the minerals that are in this solar panel, and then they've done some things... And it's like, there you go, we've made a solar panel and we can generate electricity with that. And I think that's amazing. That's yeah. kind of alchemy. I mean, alchemy wasn't just lead into gold. It was any kind of study of matter, basically chemistry. It's really the same thing, that you could study kind of the secret, invisible, what can't be seen by the naked eye, underlying structure of all things, and then use it to your advantage. That's what alchemy is. And it was hugely successful. So we think of alchemy as an obvious failure and obvious folly. But you think about what they were doing, they were able to um, develop these incredibly strong acids, 
all sorts of other extremely powerful chemicals. Not that kind uh, of acid. All sorts of, not that kind of acid, but also that kind of acid. Uh, so basically, he's an interesting guy. He's a very talented, very interesting guy. Yes. Talented, interesting. Maybe you don't want to go out with him. I don't know. He might be I'd a bit be old. interested in having a conversation with him. Uh, there's also a lot of people I wouldn't want to talk to in the yeah. 17th century, but I have some questions for him. A lot of them <laughs> concern the submarine. But yes. A concern what? But I wouldn't call him a projector. I wouldn't call him a projector. What do you mean by projector? Because we talked about projects. What do you mean by projector? So a projector was a new term in uh, around 1600, coined only in England. It's kind of amazing. Uh, it doesn't really take off in the rest of the continent for a century. And a uh, projector is someone who spins out projects. And now we think of them as crazy, kind of on the fringes of society, crack-brained. And in fact, Drebbel has been called a typical projector. But what that misses is the fact that projectors were very often socially elite. They were often noblemen. They had all the power in the world. They had access to often um, the courts. Sometimes you could even consider, and I know this is contentious, but you can consider even the king himself as a projector. And they were the people who had these ambitions to conquer the world and to really turn things to their advantage. And they were weaving together all sorts of different interventions on these grand plans for world domination. And they would bring together large groups of people to work on them. So the moment, almost from the moment that Drebbel invents the submarine around 1620, which he demonstrates on the Thames before thousands of Londoners and the king and his court, almost immediately, both King James and Prince Charles have a grand project for this. Because they see right away, oh my goodness, this is a tool that I can use to literally undermine, meaning blow up from underneath enemy navies. Oh, and totally. My God, uh, I love that. Yes, yes. So undermine. So the word undermine. Oh, very made me very happy. I love finding. So I, I use my submarine to go underneath the French ship and plant a mine. Not anymore. You wouldn't do that now. Well, they did do that then. Yes, yes. How funny. There are other ways to undermine. You know, you can, uh, all sorts of landmines, obviously, that you could put underneath a defensive piece of engineering and undermine it that way. The real weapon of mass destruction of that age was what was called a um, fire ship, which was a ship kind of like a ghost ship. It was painted to look like it was a real ship, but it was loaded with explosives. And you kind of send it along until it reached the enemy. And then on contact, it would destroy like a drone. everything. Exactly. So, like a yeah, this was uh, used in uh, the River Schelt in the Southern Netherlands um, and was struck fear and loathing throughout Europe. There were many, many prints of these fire ships exploding the enemy and casting human bodies uh, dramatically into the air. So talking about crossing boundaries and overturning nature, like the fire ship really showed what could be done with chemicals and some ingenious engineering. So the submarine took it a step further. That's problematic. Yes. <laughs> the submarine took it a step further. Let's talk about the submarine. Okay, so we're on the River Thames in London. Yes. So this is before the fire of London, six, which was six. So this is like early. London was like made of woods and things, and, and there was no congestion zone. Well, it was very polluted, that much we know. It was very polluted. I'm sure it was. 
Weren't we having a war with the Dutch at this point? I'm sure, but maybe my history's wrong. Weren't we having a war? Uh, it was just about to break out. Oh, it okay, had fine. not, it had not. Yeah, there's going to be what's called the Amboina Massacre a few years later, which is going to start this big tension with the Dutch, but which breaks out into full-scale war in the 50s. But yeah. Why Drebel? Why did he come to London to do this? Like, what was the point of doing this in the River Thames in front of the King and, and London? London was this magnet for projectors, and that's exactly why the term projector was coined there, because both King James and Prince Charles had a huge belief in this power of technology to kind of transform the powers of the state. And they were trying to foster it as much as possible through patents. So they were handing out patents in order to get people to enrich their crown. Uh, so all sorts of people with new inventions were flocking to England in order to get royal patronage for their new invention. So, so that's why Drebel originally shows up in 1607 uh, with his perpetual motion that he presents to King James. And he just can, stays there. He runs a tavern. And uh, it's said that uh, at this tavern, it's about three miles outside of London, he would use his submarine to rise up from the water like some strange monster and attract people to his pub. This is a story that's told about him. Do we know what the name of the pub is? We don't know the name of the pub. But there are many stories about Drebel and beer. So he's definitely using alchemy to advantage mm. There. Well, anyway, so tell us what his submarine looks like. So we don't know what his submarine looks like. We have no drawings of his really? submarine. We don't know. Why? It's a secret of state. You know, why would the... But if you tested it in front of the king, then somebody would have had a notebook or an iPhone, an early 1608 <laughs> iPhone, and just snapped it. Or it would have just a pencil and a bit of paper and drawn it. If only, but No. So we have people's descriptions of what it was like. Uh, one person who observed it called it a whale, but that was also just a general term that's used to describe any kind of large submersible in the period. Someone else, namely the playwright Ben Johnson, talks about it as being like an eel. So we have got all sorts of different submarine creature analogies that people are using to describe this thing. Uh, but the main thing, I think the reason why it attracted all of these kind of biological metaphors is because as opposed to these really clunky other submersibles and weird looking outfits, this thing was nimble and it was quick and it was agile. And that's what made it terrifying is that, you know, the story that Drebel's friend, Constantine Halkins, father of the famous scientist, writes Constantine is hanging out in London. He's a good friend of Drebel's. And he's in the crowd. And unfortunately, although Halkins fancies himself an artist, actually draws his self-portrait around this time, it's not very good, though. He doesn't draw the submarine. He just describes it in kind of lengthy, poetic Latin, which is what he composed his autobiography in. And so it doesn't give us too many technical details, if you know what I mean. But he does say how the court and the king and several thousand Londoners are there and Drebel goes underwater with a bunch of other submariners for about three hours to the extent that everyone thought that they must be dead by then. But then he pops up somewhere far 
far away. And so he's proven that not only can they stay submerged out of sight completely for a long time, but they can also navigate totally unseen underwater. So this is a, a nimble little guy, this submarine that can really creep up somewhere. And if you're thinking about fire ships and their destructor potential, imagine this kind of boat. So not surprisingly, according to an, an interview that one person held with Drebbel's associates, Almost immediately when this thing was invented, King James said, make me a hundred more. Of course. <laughs> and I want them to be one person submarines. Can you imagine one person little submarines speeding about each of them able to blow up a ship? Yeah. You would awesome. win any naval engagement. Yeah. And so there was excitement straight away. Am I right in thinking that Drebbel's submarine was actually used in a battle or... There was a, another huge project to use it, and that didn't per se take place, that one. So almost immediately, again, say by 1622, Prince Charles has the scheme to send the submarine to the Indian Ocean and to make it the basis for a perpetual industry of digging up shipwrecks and pearls from the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And there's this whole humongous other series of incredible things it was going to do when it was out there and totally transform England's relationship to the very powerful empires of Asia. This was his plan. And that didn't take place exactly. There are aspects of it that do eventually materialize. But the same people that Prince Charles was going to send to the Indian Ocean formed this crew that continued to work with Drebbel. And one of them, in fact, does take Drebbel and his underwater boats off to a naval engagement off the coast of France in 1627. The amazing thing is that even before that battle, as soon as Prince Charles becomes king, he orders this same guy, the same courtier, to work with Drebbel on developing at least four submarines. And he gives him a fairly large amount of uh, supplies and space, pays Drebbel about $30,000 American dollars in today's cash, 100 pounds at the time, to investigate this. So the moment he becomes king, he says, I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but this is going to be useful for something and I'm going to invest in this. And then he does, in fact, bring it out for this naval engagement in France. It does terribly. Uh, well, this is the thing. I just want to try and, and I know there's no drawings and I know there's no official things, but I want to try and understand, get a picture of how it works. There's one description I read that said it looked a little bit like a kind of rowing boat and it had sort of leather on it to stop the, the water getting in. And did they like pump air into or did they have snorkels or I, I mean, how? Yeah, people always want to know this. Uh, it's one of those things that's you want to know, as an intense secret of state, this is not something that was publicized or documented at the time. And there's all sorts of missing documents. Like I have references and other documents that do survive to an ample illustration and demonstration of how this worked. And I just wish that ample illustration survived, but it does not. This is what it's like doing 17th century research. There's a Dutch guy who like made it though, or TV. Didn't they do like a TV project where they tried to like build a, a kind of prototype? Yeah. I'm sure I, I saw that. <laughs> the BBC also did a, and a the version. BBC. Yes, yes. When I visited Drebbel's hometown, they told me uh, when I visited Alkmaar and I visited the city museum in Alkmaar, they said, prepare yourself. We have a Drebbel adventure. 
And I asked them, well, what is the Dribble Adventure? And they wouldn't say because they said then it wouldn't be an adventure anymore. And it turned out it was going down their elevator as though you were going under the waters of the ocean. And then at the bottom, you emerged and there's kind of like smoke machine. And there is the BBC's recreation of, of the submarine. What did that look like? Tell us what that looked like. It's not really based on. It's, n- it's anything not deep. From the it's not secret now. It's not classified <laughs> now. You're allowed to tell us. Yeah, it, that looks like a kind of cute, very rounded. You know, if I wanted to make kind of an adorable emoji submarine, it's what I would make a submarine look like. Was it yellow? It was not yellow. It was not yellow. No. I'm not sure it had anything to do with what I would have looked for when I, I was designing a sinister, agile machine to blow up enemy warships. I would want something much sleeker. But one of the reasons why this is the preferred shape is besides the fact that people don't immediately think war machine when they think 17th century submarine, they think more, oh, imagination and wonder. But also, there are a bunch of people who in the period were trying to figure out what this thing was and what it looked like, and they have sketches. So we have sketches from the period of what people imagine the submarine might have been, Drebbel submarine might have been, not based on any factual evidence. And so they look like those sketches, the reconstructions do, yeah. So it was used in a battle off of the coast of France. What was it called? The b- battle? Do we know what the which battle it was? Battle of the Isle of Ray. Yeah. Isle of Ray. That's it. And that was the end of submarines for a few hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More of a problem was uh, first off, until then, this thing had been tested on a river. This was out in the open ocean, and it was a very stormy sea. Uh, Things were not going well for the ships in general. Although in the period, that is one of the uh, reasons why people are looking for submarines. They think that without exposure to the winds above the water, that it will be much less in the harm's way of a storm. That's not how it turned out. So in general, there was total chaos. It was a total disaster, this entire military engagement. The best engineers they had were Drebbel and a gardener, John Tradescant. So not much military talent being sent out there. One of the issues was really more with the underwater bombs than with the underwater boats. So the underwater bombs did not explode very effectively to uh, the great delight of the opposing French army shot water ineffectually upon their boats. How did this submarine move, do we think? Was it oars? Is that the kind of method of propulsion, do we think? Oars? Presumably they wouldn't have had a nuclear reactor. We do think it was oars, although I have to mention that there is a pretty wonderful 1630 Dutch Rosicrucian pamphlet that does describe a perpetually motion-driven submarine. So that would be your equivalent of a nuclear submarine for the time. But yeah. Do you think it was ours? So Drebbel, we've now heard about Drebbel. So perpetual motion machines, he came up with that. Submarines, an oven that had a sort of thermostat in it, a sort of self-regulating oven, which was pretty cool. Any other like projects we need to know about Drebbel? Chemical air conditioning. Chemical. Oh yeah, he 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 did Westminster Abbey, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He, he air conditioned right. Westminster Abbey with big blocks of ice. Yes, that's awesome. He also had a project to centrally heat the entire city of London by building a perpetual, you know, fire on a hill outside and then shooting fire through pipes to individual people's houses. And that was another project, which unfortunately the prince chose not to fund. 
Um, but they're just constant. He does various types of uh, microscopes and telescopes and camera obscurae. You name it, he was doing it in the 17th century. When did he die? When did we lose this great this great mind? 1633. Why haven't we heard of him? Why is he kind of vanished from the history? Well, not vanished, but he's little known, which is a shame. I mean, I think one of the reasons is because kind of our image of you know, what mattered in science of the period. We think about scientific method, we think about discipline, we think about being dispassionate. And when we look at someone like Drevel, he just seems crazy. He seems so far out there. He seems not to really fit into that whole story. And so he won't really be remembered until our whole kind of story of what science was gets rewritten. It's a great story. Uh, Vera, thank you for introducing us to Cornelius Drabble and the idea of projects and projectors and submarines. Good luck with the book, The Interlopers. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. May it sell millions of copies. May it sell millions of copies. Thank you very much, Vera. (laughs) So there we go. The history of the submarine. Who knew? Thank you very much, Vera, for taking part. Thank you very much, Vera, for writing your book. It's a terrific book. If you're interested in that particular area, if you're interested really in the history of science and technology and how ideas begin, it is absolutely worth a read. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Thank you very much for your company. It is hugely appreciated. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.